0: Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Penabad. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie.
1: Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Penabad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They're the backdrop for our lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how can we work together to design a better world. In this episode, I will embark on a journey through the lens of photographer Stefan Gottlicher, His evocative images transport us from the rugged landscape of Switzerland's Graubunden region to the delicate and vital ecosystem of South Florida's Everglades. Stefan's work serves as a bridge between our urban lives and the untamed beauty of the natural world, allowing viewers to become immersed in these awe-inspiring environments. But before I begin my conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. <laughs> Stefan Gottlicker currently serves as the art director and photographer of the award-winning Miami-based branding and design firm La Yellow. Prior to his career as a photographer, Stefan was a classically trained ballet dancer who worked as a professional member of several prestigious ballet companies throughout Europe, including the English National Ballet. He began his photographic career by taking photographs for dance companies and has been a full-time freelance photographer since 2000. His work has been featured in a number of exhibitions curated by the fantastic Gallery Club based in Amsterdam, including The Passage of Time, Part One, The Passage of Time, Part Two, both group exhibitions in Miami, Invisible, a group exhibition in Amsterdam, ARC, And most recently, he was featured as part of the Chicago Art Department group exhibition curated by Asha Iman Veal, associate curator of the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago. Stefan, thank you for joining On Cities today. It is a pleasure to be speaking with
2: you. Thank you, Carrie. Um, Great introduction. I feel very honored and moved, and I'm very happy to be here with you. Thank you very much for having me. As am I. So, Stefan,
1: I often begin by asking my guests about their formative years, because I Mm -hmm. think somehow those years, both consciously and maybe unconsciously, shape our ideas about the built environment. Mm -hmm. So, Stefan, tell me a little bit about where you grew up and how you think that experience may have shaped your views about the world.
2: Yeah, I think everything really shapes our views. And um, uh, I was born in Dusseldorf uh, in Germany, West Germany, which was the west of West Germany back then still. Um, It was the early 70s, end of the 60s, early 70s. And um, yeah, I was a single child. And um, Germany was still a little bit under... The weather, I would say it was, it still had this seriousness. It still has it, but it was very serious. And you could feel that the war years were still lingering around. And it was slightly gray sometimes and um, desaturated, maybe a little bit of beige. Older people, older folks. um, The seriousness of the people that rebuilt everything was all around us. And, I think my mother was very artistically inclined from the beginning. Um, She brought me to museums and to theaters and to opera. And it was such a wonderful thing for me to go into this creative atmosphere and to actually see that there is something else out there and that people really work with that and that there is a, a life in art and people, play instruments in an orchestra or they dance and, and paint uh and even even in the most serious gallery exhibitions that she took me early on i was very young um it was maybe like around 5 and 6 um i felt something in there the people were serious but they were talking about what was hanging on the wall and i thought that's amazing because it's not all just you know so serious it's it has to be something in art that is fascinating and that people talk about and it was like a warm haven for me always going there it felt good and I think that's probably also the reason why I decided to pursue a, a more creative career uh, uh, later on yeah it was I mean, pretty that, much later on
1: and that you did right not only uh, we're going to be talking a great deal about your um, work as a photographer, but actually prior to that, mm-hmm. you um you had a long and successful career as a professional, classically trained ballet dancer, mm-hmm. which I learned several years ago, which fascinated
2: me. Um, so tell me about this. Uh, it was basically again my mother's side of the family was very artistic as well. Um, my youngest cousin, who was like a, a brother to me, um, started dancing before me. Um, his older brother was a painter. And um, so things pretty much automatically. I went to a small private school first uh, to train ballet. And it was actually because of my girlfriend back then, <laughs> um, my first girlfriend, Um <laughs> Uh, or it was like a little, little thing. And she (laughs) told me, you have to come and see what I do. Otherwise you can't be with me. And I decided to go. And uh, from then on, things just, you know, happened and I had to move fast because at the age of 13, 14, as a male dancer, you can still do it, but you have to be physically talented, which I was, and you have to act fast basically and then it only took one year uh, in the classical in the first classical school uh, that was a private school and after that I decided to move to Hamburg uh, which had a back then probably the best academy in Germany uh, John Neumeyer also American um he founded the school and it was uh, I did the audition I was accepted and I very quickly decided to move to Hamburg and uh had a four-year, very intense and very um, formative time as a ballet uh, pupil. It was discipline. You were your instrument. Your body was your instrument, and you had to sharpen it for other people. You had to show it. You had to keep it fit. You had to worry about everything that comes into play, from food to You know, you learn to be very disciplined. And I think um, that also uh, continued even after my career as a dancer, I try and do everything very disciplined for myself, like in a certain rhythm and in a certain um, time. So
1: you know, but, yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Stefan, because oftentimes I think, um, you know, maybe this is a broad generalization, but artists are viewed as these kind of free spirits and joyful and, you know, which oftentimes they are. But, you know, um, and and I think that not enough is said about the rigor and the discipline right. that goes into the creative um you know, either performance arts right. or visual arts. And yes. in fact, those that have long careers in any one of these creative disciplines, they have extraordinary rigor and discipline, which I think is yes. oftentimes overlooked or not discussed. So I'm really glad that you pointed that out because I can see how you could t- apply those um, lessons, um, that yes. discipline to your work now as a photographer, which is, you know, perhaps what we're going to be. You know, delving into, mm-hmm. uh, but but I guess before we start talking specifically about your fine arts photography, mm-hmm. which is, I think is going to be really central to the conversation, um, I did want to also discuss the fact that you serve currently as an art director mm-hmm. and a lead photographer for the Miami-based branding and design firm Lemon Yellow. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was curious, can you describe your role within the company and how
2: it differs from your work as a freelance photographer? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting question because um, it really changed quite a bit um, starting to work this way. Before in Germany, um, I went through ups and downs because it was a time of change. I had started uh, as a freelance photographer with film, analog film photography. I was a very good assistant because as a dancer, you... You learn to take orders and you're very disciplined again. And my assisting work was fantastic, and everybody uh, was very happy when I was assisting. When I later started as a freelance photographer, I think this became a little bit more, uh, changed a little bit. It was a little bit more difficult because you felt the responsibility uh, towards the client. And now I had to carry it. I was no longer the, the little, uh, you know, person in between that can make everybody's life easier and then serve the photographer. I was the photographer myself. It was a little bit hard and it was a lot of changes happening, like 2001 happened, 2008 was in there. So the beginning was a great time. It was very creative and very... Um, I worked in Italy for agencies. I don't want to miss that. But when I moved to the U.S., to Miami in 2008, it was for personal reasons. And I never thought I was going to be in Miami for such a long time. Um, uh, it took me here um, for personal reasons. And I, my wife um, had already started the agency uh, five years prior to that. And it was a small but very interesting working branding agency design at first and then later we moved it more into the branding and it it just grew and grew and the work is very exciting because i get to be my own boss a little bit i have the chance to sit at the table with the clients visually brand them through my ideas what would be best for them uh, determined with the client at the table and then later on i can pretty much go by myself and try to realize my ideas for the client. So it was incredibly satisfying and fruitful to move from this being all alone to this teamwork in this agency. And that really also, uh, I I never had any thoughts of uh, interrupting that um, because it also freed me from a certain stress that protected me from becoming an artist, unfortunately, because... Um, when you when you feel more fulfilled and you work a lot, you actually can separate your time better. You can manage it better and work on one thing and then take your time for another. And that really helped me working for the agency. Hmm. And I, we grew uh, very, very fast. And it was very satisfying to see that result.
1: Yeah. Well, knowing your partner and having worked with you, Erica Morales and your team, I think they're an extraordinary team of individuals. Yes. And I can see how you would... Um, kind of benefit from that collegiality that yeah. occurs in the agency that gives you a certain degree of freedom to also explore your more
2: individual work, right? Absolutely. Um, which, in which perhaps you are the client, right? right. So the relationship changes right. once again. And one thing I, I just came to my mind, um, it also reminded me a little bit of that teamwork that I was missing during my first years as a photographer uh, that I knew from dance. You were in a big team with people from all over the world, a wonderful thing, You create something. It's not necessarily your work. You're just one part of it. Mm, I was always a little too brainy um, to maybe follow up with that or or continue this career for longer. That's also a reason why I changed to photography, I guess, Uh, to keep the moments and not have such a volatile art form uh, as dance. Uh, but um, being with the agency, uh, working in a team was reminding me a lot of my dance times. And, yeah. and it was a very nice uh, experience as well. Yeah, I think I changed since back then because I'm a lot older and I'm probably not so team
1: oriented
2: uh, sometimes, but um, I do enjoy it very much.
1: So, in preparing for this conversation, I spent time studying your uh, photographs, and I saw a recurring interest in the depiction of natural landscapes. Beginning mm-hmm. with your wonderful collection of images from 2015, I think it's probably the earliest um, series mm-hmm. entitled "Wanderlust." Mm-hmm. This series documents the forests of Trentino Alto in northern Italy mm-hmm. and the Graubunden. Mm-hmm. Hoping I didn't, yeah. you know, annihilate that one. <laughs> Pretty good uh, region of Switzerland. <laughs> So, um, Stefan, can you describe this landscape for our listeners and maybe the story that you were trying to tell through Mm -hmm. your images?
2: Yes. So the landscape is um, a very beautiful one. It's very uh, particular. It's a mountainous area. It's by the tree line. So at the end of the tree lines, um, everything above you is snow-covered mountains that are Gorgeous! The landscape is beautiful, and it's uh, sometimes overwhelming. Sometimes it's gloomy, um, and it's very, very German. There's pine trees, and um, even though it's Switzerland and, and Alto Adige is the northern, the furthest northern part from from Italy, but it's it's people speak German. To be honest, and it's very interesting landscape. A lot of wine is grown there, but in the higher regions, you get into you know cold like minus degrees even approaching summer sometimes so it's very fascinating to be in that landscape the the series i did there though i was not trying to show that landscape in its beauty um i think it's been done and it was not really in my interest to do that i also was limited in my possibilities which i wanted i love limitations so i had a camera an analog photo camera, a medium format camera that can close and open, but it had holes in the bellows. I had just ordered it from Japan and it got to me one week before we left to Europe. So I wanted to still try and use that camera, even though the sun would destroy the negatives while I exposed the film most of the time. So with a very good friend in Hamburg, where I lived for almost 20 years, who's a master printer, um, I he gave me a possibility to develop my film or he developed my film in a very specific way, giving me more time during the exposure so the images wouldn't be totally destroyed. Also, I had to photograph in the shade so I couldn't stand in the sun, which already changed what I could take pictures of. And I wanted to be a little closer to my to my objects, to the, to the landscape and really just frame part of it. Um, inspiration, I think, was maybe the romantic uh, movement in, in Germany uh, at the end of the uh, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, the writers go to paintings by, by famous painters that depicted those those landscapes so that was the inspiration and what came out was very satisfying for me i think it was just the beginning of of waking up to my artistic side again and working on that it was it was a conscious decision to do that and it was just three films at the end, it's like 30 photos. And I chose a few of them and printed them large. And it was a very satisfying uh, experience. From then on, I also, but funny enough, I needed my landscape that I understood most because until then I was working professionally as a photographer in, in Miami, doing all these beautiful photos of blue sky and palm trees and lush, vegetation, and powerful colors. But for my personal work, that was never really in my thoughts, it was not really what I'm looking for. So it was very difficult for me to start my personal work in Miami. At that time, it took me whiles to find something that I was excited to photograph. And um, so my very first series was in Europe in a German-looking landscape uh, trying out this. this I mean, it,
1: make, it makes so much sense because oftentimes when we're looking for our way in the world as artists, you know, yeah. there's always a return home yeah. uh, because you're looking for, in a way you're tapping into that local zeitgeist. Right. Um, and what about it is reflected in you? And I think when artists do that in a um, sincere and meaningful way, they also type into universal themes. So I, I found that to be really uh, kind of poignant, and the other thing I found is that I mean, if I would have been uh, a defect, if I would have gotten a defective camera, <laughs> I would probably ran to the store and bought a new one.
2: I know, but I feel I
1: like the fact <laughs> I feel like that's your dancer that came through. Like Definitely. you wrapped your ankle, yes. you know what I mean. Here right. I have, I don't have a choice. I've got to go. I've right. got to perform. So now I'm going to do the best. Uh, possible. And I'm going to compensate, you know, as I think dancers do, right. They're yes. not always at their hundred percent. So the show must go on. Uh, and i think that is i think admirable
2: even if you have a broken toe sometimes
1: (laughs) or a broken lens in your case
2: (laughs) right so i think
1: or not a bro what is it
2: a a, a yeah no it was the bellows that had light leaks but um also i think for my personal work i don't look for perfection and i really uh, welcome the chance so it was a it was a little bit of a chance there and I was very happy with the results, and uh, because of my daily work as a photographer, I work a lot with perfection, and I wanted to um, get rid of some of that in yeah. my personal work.
1: Well, I think the images are atmospheric. Yes, I think they also um, keep the viewer in pretty close contact with the landscape. You yes. never get a kind of expansive view, so they're, I think, quite personal, and um, I think a, a beautiful documentation of of a place that one could call home for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you. So, I mean, actually, we can turn, in fact, um, following this idea of uh, the landscape, there is a second series entitled Florida Dark Now, Mm -hmm. which, as I understand (laughs) it, is an ongoing series that can be understood as, uh, I think you describe them as x-rays of nature. Mm -hmm. And as part of this series, you document the fragile ecosystem of South Florida. Yes. Yes. This is an entirely different landscape than the one that you were just talking about. So can you describe this landscape for those who are unfamiliar with it?
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. So um, obviously, when I came to Miami as a European, I'm always interested in landscape and the nature around the city, what surrounds the city. What is the city built on? And all these questions were the first questions I asked myself. And I wanted to go to the Everglades. When I, when we finally, because you have to go by car, when we finally drove through the Everglades, I had to look for traffic a little bit. There was always somebody, always a pickup truck behind me pushing me. And I didn't have enough time to look uh, right and left and we stopped and i was a little underwhelmed at first because it's such flat land and it's so delicate when you look closer all these things open up to you and there there are worlds hidden from you that you would not really see at first and at the same time it's actually very flat some of the trees Uh, particular saltwater trees or the oak trees are they're gray they have this gray tone which also fascinated me and and they look very um, picturesque and very uh, fine and delicate and then obviously the wildlife that you can feel around you can't really see it but you can feel it Um, it all fascinated me but I didn't really know what to do until I took The decision to make it really difficult for me (laughs) and um, desaturate again and take out all the color that I'm seeing and go by night, um, pack a rather large equipment and actually a studio flash that I use in the studio with a battery pack. Uh, But it's a very large one. So I really, I need an assistant to do that Um, and take it to the Everglades and place it spots that i had researched locations that i found before during the day and uh, fire flash into the dark sometimes i don't even see what i'm photographing i can hear what surrounds me and i don't want to use so much light because that attracts insects that then later show up on my photos as white balls uh, round white balls in the flashlight so um Not a very good thing. So I left the lights off most of the time and was standing in pitch darkness, trying to focus and then saw the image that I was taking with the flashlight. Again, a very interesting um, approach. I'm not fully in control, even though I'm setting it up to the highest standards and making all that effort to get there. I was very interested in what would come out and um, the photos fascinated me. And also, seeing the flash for a split second in front of your eyes that then disappears uh, was fascinating and will, I'm still working on this series today. It's ongoing and it was actually started in 2015. I'm trying to end it before 25. So it's,
1: well, it movie, will be a
2: 10-year Maybe this is a
1: project that doesn't necessarily have to end, right? It could be an ongoing series. And just to underscore what you described, again, for our listeners that might not be familiar with this landscape, you know, the great writer Marjorie Stoneman Douglas described this swamp as a river of grass. Mm -hmm. And I find it compelling that you would... talk about the distinct differences between these two because in the mm-hmm. first example, right, being in this kind of mountainous, mm-hmm. highly lush environment, there's a um there's a sense of enclosure yes. that the landscape produces. Yes. Whereas when one exits Miami and heads on Tam Miami Trail mm-hmm. west into the swamp, which yes. is really the Everglades, yes. right? There used to be a time, having grown up in Miami, mm-hmm. where the distance between the city and that pristine, let's say, natural landscape was much greater. Fascinating. Over time, the city essentially is at the heels of the Everglades, and a lot can be talked about this. And so the transition between one and the other is is quite abrupt, right? Yes. Um, But then when you get out there, it can be inhospitable. And I have to say, I kind (laughs) of lose my breath when I think about you photographing In an environment where there are alligators, and you know, can be quite inhospitable. So I think mosquitoes. Well, a lot of them. Very, you know, the the sort of the insects, the sounds, you know, the 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 wildlife, you know, that is so inherently a part of that landscape. Of course, the birds that you're describing, Um, and I. What I'd like to do is I'd like to take a quick break. We're mm-hmm. sort of at the middle of the conversation. Okay. And when we return, okay. I'd like to talk in detail of one of my favorite images in this series, mm-hmm. which is called Ibis Island. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of hauntingly beautiful image. Um, and I want to understand exactly what you did to take that image. Okay. So um, <laughs> please uh, tune in for the second half of my conversation with the photographer Stefan Gutlicker. We'll be right back in just a few minutes. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates
0: from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment, our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world.
1: Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, tune in at iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or
0: on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy.
1: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebott. We hope you're
1: enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with photographer Stefan Gottlicker. And just before the break, we were talking about his series, The Florida Dark Now, which is an ongoing series that can be understood as x-rays of nature. Stefan, one of my favorite images mm-hmm. um, that can be uh, part of, or can be considered part of this collection mm-hmm. is entitled Ibis Island. Mm-hmm. It's a stunning black and white image taken at night of uh, a mangrove yes that rises out of the water, but within it is this collection of uh white ibis right um so photographing these scenes as at night seems to me like I said before the break <laughs> to be very intimidating mm-hmm. um why do you work in this way mm-hmm. and can you tell us how you actually went about producing that particular image
2: mm-hmm. yes yeah, so i um, I think I'm very interested in the abstraction of what I see day to day a little bit more than I ever thought I was. I'm not so much a document photographer than even though doing landscapes, I need to add an abstraction to them in order for them to be my photos um and uh in the in the in this uh, instance. I had planned to photograph this island, which is basically a group of mangroves coming out of the Miami Bay. Um, And it's pretty easy to go about maybe 20 meters close to them on on stable land. So um, I saw it during the day. I took a photo during the day as well, because I like to play with daylight and night. Uh, positive negative the research of the positive negative is increasingly important in my photography especially because I'm I'm using analog film and you get back a negative you see the negative before you actually have to do the positive and it is fascinating. Um, I of course I knew all this from a long time ago and I was very familiar with it but it's a fascinating process if you use larger cameras to have a physical, bigger physical film in front of you that you can actually lay on top of each other, all, all kinds of different, beautiful things happen. But in this instance, I wanted to take a night shot um, because the flash only reaches to a certain point and then falls off. I can't photograph the moon with a flash. Sometimes when I see tourists looking at the moon, taking a flash photo with their pocket cameras or with their iPhone, I I find it so funny because the flash is never going to reach the moon. Um, But I, I knew I was going to put light on that man- group of mangroves, and then the darkness it would disappear in the darkness. The background would just be black, and I was interested in creating this. When I actually went there, um, I uh, took my cart and, and and rolled my cart there, my camera, and I looked at the the island. I couldn't believe what I saw. It was full of white ibises. I mean, full, sprinkled like on top of a of a muffin. Um, it was, it, and they were all like making little funny noises, but they, I think they were sleeping. And um, then I thought, oh my God, I did not, uh, I didn't want to do a nature photo like that or a bird photo, or, you know, don't want to be the next bird photo photographer. But um, I didn't think that this could be fantastic right away. Obviously a couple of minutes later, I was like, well, let me see if they still there after I do my first test flash because it is a very big flash and it's rather, you know, bright and and disturbing, I guess, for nature as well. And I just heard a little bit of mumbling after the flash and a little bit of noises and um, some complaints, but they all stayed on there. So I had about an hour to set up everything and to photograph this photo. And it turned out to be, you know, what you see and uh, unexpectedly really beautiful with an extra layer that I did not plan for.
1: Yeah. And and the fact that you work in black and white and the yeah. background is so dark. Yes. And then the bodies of those white ibis, you know, yeah. sprinkled across the top of them, you know, full of life, I think is really is quite stunning. And the ibis for those who are not aware, as I understand it is, you know, it's, um, it's a bird that yes. is pretty meaningful to South yes. Florida because it, it's, it always uh, travels in groups, right? They yeah. travel in packs. Yeah. And then they also leave. They're the first birds to leave okay, um, when when the hurricanes mm-hmm. are approaching. And right. then they're one of the first to return.
2: So they warn you pretty so, well. So
1: I think that they have a deep connection to this place. So. Yes,
2: and they live in our city. And I Sometimes yeah. I come to my car and I have an ibis <laughs> sitting on my rear mirror. And it's, it's truly, wonderful. truly, truly, truly. Um, <laughs> So, if we
1: continue along the lines of of landscape, I think you have a third series, right? Mm-hmm. which is a, a much more recent collection of mm-hmm. images entitled "Outdoor Enclosures." Mm-hmm. Stefan, where are these taken? um and why, in this instance, did you decide to
2: use color? Yeah. this um I mean, uh, first, I have to f- say it's a creation uh, that happened during the pandemic. And uh, yet again, I bought myself a new camera just before that, and it was a view camera, so a very large camera, which changes your whole approach, which is the camera I'm working with right now. Um, But uh, I wanted to try it out and use it and also photograph in color because I hadn't done that for so long. I'm slightly colorblind, so I'm always shy to use color. And there's so many possibilities that come in. If you add color to your photo, you have 10 different possibilities in each color color. Uh, that you could choose while you print your image. So it's very um, confusing. And because I like limitations, I think it's not the first thing that I gravitate towards. Even though I love color photo, I I tend to desaturate them a little bit. So I I found this little park on on Key Biscayne Crandon Park um, that I had been going to uh, with my dogs, uh, even though dogs are not really allowed, but I hope (laughs) I'm not getting into trouble here. But um, it fascinated me. It had a very intense atmosphere, and I did not know why. There were cages in the middle of it that were almost naively colorfully drawn uh, on. They, They were painted. They had animals painted on them. And I thought it was fascinating to go through this rather wild little park. During the pandemic, it was also not kept. So it had an added wildness and roughness to it that I really found fascinating and in researching about this park I found out that it was once America's or the U.S. largest zoo um with over 1,200 animals in them. I
1: didn't realize that.
2: Yeah I did not know that either and it's just there um in in the '60s, though, uh, because it's it's on an island, it was difficult to maintain it well, and maybe there were too many animals in the zoo, and they weren't really kept perfectly. There was criticism, and then a hurricane killed a lot of the animals in its in their cages uh, mm-hmm. because they weren't saved in time. It was difficult to get to Key Biscayne, and that was a tragic thing. And I think it 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 is still in the landscape this little story. Um, That is so tragic. And I wanted to photograph the photos again, not the whole park, but little details from the, maybe from the perspective of the animal, like, or like looking, I'm maybe I'm even running through the bushes or trying to save myself or, um, you know, I wanted to create something and I wanted to see if that's actually, if you could see that in the photos afterwards that are just very simple um landscape photos of green. Um, it's just bushes and trees and palm trees, dried palm trees and fallen trees and coconuts and grass and swamp and all that on there, but pretty close, a little bit from the perspective perspective of the animal. And I think that kind of worked and it came out really nicely.
1: Yeah, it's funny because I didn't know the
2: story yeah. about
1: the this sort of tragic story of the animals before yeah. I saw the the images, mm-hmm. but yet they still convey because a lot of the landscape is dried. Right. There's a kind of a sense of you okay. know, death. Yes, Or, you know, a kind of forgotten landscape. Yes. Um, and also the fact that you you um, photograph the cages. Yes. There is a, a kind of melancholy because there's a sense of abandon. I'm glad so to see I that. I think yeah. it does come through in the images because,
2: it, again, I didn't know the story before you you just told it. So um, It has since been cleaned up and the cages are painted beige. And unfortunately, none of this is still there, which also is nice because I kept it.
1: Yeah. Well, also, I think that's the power of photography. of photography. Yes, You're I love able that to obviously um, not just document because through your eyes there is, I think, a uh, a framed way of looking at the landscape and your desire for greater um, abstraction in your imagery, yes. um, but. It, it remains the photograph remains mm-hmm. and oftentimes even in buildings yes. buildings that have disappeared you i know, can't be fast
2: enough as to an architect. Photograph all the buildings well, yeah. that i love that are disappearing so fast yeah. sometimes and i give up but um i'm well, also happy when i got a detail of those buildings
1: well that can also be an entire other episode you know yes. the loss of That's historic, of historic buildings yes. in a city like miami yes you know? but oftentimes what is left is the just the photographs so memory I, the I, photograph, yeah, absolutely yeah um so you know but beyond your interest in landscapes you have also photographed architectural works by notable modernist architects including the German hmm. Mies der <laughs> Roy mm-hmm. Le Corbusier And more locally, here in South Florida, the work of Cuban-born architect Mm -hmm. Hilario Candela, Mm -hmm. who was a formidable architect who just passed away last year. Yet you never depict any of the buildings in their entirety, or Mm -hmm. at least rarely, the ones that I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, And you seem to keep the viewer close to the subjects with a focus on the more architectural details Mm -hmm. and perhaps the play of light on the various surfaces. So I don't know if I'm... um, Accurately describing it, but why do you decide to depict works of architecture in this way?
2: I think, again, it's a little bit like the beautiful mountain range that we all seen. And all of these, or most of those buildings have been photographed in a really classic way. And I'm not so, as an artist, I'm not so interested in this. I'm rather interested in play of light on the material whether it's concrete or glass or, or, um, aluminum or steel. Um, but I also find it very intimate to, to frame it closely. You get a very intimate sense. Sometimes you see imperfections. Sometimes you see, you see the little wrinkles that like people also know when they look in the mirror sometimes. And it's just like a building for me is a very, um, emotional thing uh, for, for some reason. I, I I always loved architecture and when I grew up, part of my family was into all these furnitures, the modernist, the Bauhaus was everywhere, the Italian from the 60s, the lambs. All this also influenced me and I think when I saw the buildings, I couldn't help but photograph them in my personal way and I'm very happy I did this. Also, Ilaria Candela fascinated me um, I went to the Southern um, campus, uh, more than the Marine Stadium that everybody knows, that is obviously the most spectacular of its structures still around. But um, the, the Southern campus of um, Miami-Dade uh, campus fascinated me. And I remember going there and seeing the, the jumping tower of the pool, and I thought, oh my god! Like this the diving, be. the diving. Yes, platforms. it was out of concrete, but it was like it, I, I saw the architect. Like, okay, I can't do a lot of things because it's for Miami date. I can't really do what I want here, and I have to change the concrete there. But the the tower for the pool, I'm going to do like a sculpture. I'm going to do what I want to do, and that kind of came across when I saw it. And then suddenly, I researched, and I was like, oh, it's Hilaria Candela with this famous architecture from Pandesio, and I mean you know them better than me um but uh I started looking very closely at it and I thought it would had a beautiful tropical modernism that it kind of um it just had that it was tr- it was uh, brutalist in the middle of the tropics and I love that combination and it's for me one of the highlights in Miami to look at I love that um
1: Uh, Yeah. He was a a formidable architect. Yes. Um, And I think it's interesting that you would choose the most kind of one of the most sculptural aspects of the, of the compilation of buildings that he and his firm would design for Miami Dade community college. Um, And somehow there is a kind of, general interest in, in materiality and concrete kind of weaves its yes. way across all the photographs, right? Yes. Which Miami is an interesting place because unlike um, other more northern cities, I know you spend a lot of time in Chicago, right. Right. you know, these are cities of steel, but yes. actually Miami Break. is more closely linked to Latin America. Absolutely. We are largely a city that builds in, in, let's say concrete, concrete. and masonry. Yeah. And so, um, I think of course, Ilario is tapping into this kind yeah. of general universal language of brutalism, as you described earlier, but he's also kind of expressing that, um, with a, Beautiful. with a Latin American flair. Yes. So yes. I, 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 uh, I he's very missed. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm, I'd like to turn a little bit to Mm -hmm. the work that you're doing right now, Mm -hmm. which seems, um, you know, maybe a different Mm -hmm. scope or attitude. I don't know if I'm, if I'm being fair in describing it it that way, but maybe um, I'd like to talk a little bit about a project entitled about cities Mm -hmm. Yes, um, where, as I understand it, you're doing a collection of diptychs Mm -hmm. of cities or two, two image pairs uh, of cities that you've lived in and um are intimately connected with so tell us a little
2: bit about this personal project for sure and again it happened because of my love for Ilario Candela and the lushness of Miami I combined uh two images that I thought really are important for me in Miami and I I I'm trying to to uh dissect what the cities mean to me, not what is necessarily known, I don't want to fall into um too many uh, cliches or into a cliche at all but um i'm i'm looking for what i'm really drawn to in the city that personalizes that city for me and um so what is that in miami in miami it's again the concrete and the brutalism and that combined with a lushness and a tropical uh, environment that is amazing i think it reminds me of my time in brazil where mm-hmm. I grew up for three years, I three, four years, I was in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro or in the state of Rio de Janeiro. And that influenced my way of looking at Miami a lot. And it made it a lot easier to get here and accept all this beautiful chaos sometimes <laughs> that is around you. Uh, and I just love that. But the other cities are obviously going to be Chicago. I already started working on this. And it's going to have to be Mies, Um and uh, and the lake for me, the lake in Chicago is like an ocean. And again, it reminds me of Rio de Janeiro. Funny enough, it has nothing to do with it. But when I'm in Chicago and I see this brilliant skyline and the sun hits it from the, the lake that is endless. Maybe it doesn't have the surfers and it doesn't have the waves, but everything else looks like it has beaches. Even it looks like Rio de Janeiro to me with this majestic skyline. And um the lake. So that will be Chicago. And then I'm going to go to Germany uh, for Düsseldorf, Berlin, and Hamburg, which are very important cities for me. And I'm just going to take it as an exercise, going back into my childhood and into my younger years and, and trying to find two images in each city that um, speak the city for me, but it's a very personal project. This is a small project and it's basically a way to stay uh, outside with a camera because my work has been changing quite a bit. I've started to hide in the studio a little bit more than I thought I ever would and create a lot of the images that I'm interested in myself with light and shadow. And, And they, like one of my,
1: Actually before we yes. we we get, go into the studio uh, mm-hmm. I had I had a, another question mm-hmm. uh, about your about cities uh, yes. series so I feel like every time you start a series you buy a different camera or you, or you use a different camera <laughs> uh-huh. so in this case not are, so is there <laughs> did you buy a new instrument for no, the about cities that would produce a certain case. outcome or no
2: no and i'm very um that that um i can see why you think that but i'm very um Uh, I I, I keep my cameras forever, Um, so that camera that I bought broken is still my main camera, Um, I repaired it since and it's fine and it's almost a little boring sometimes because now everything is perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But um, (laughs) I I still take it like my iPhone. It's a medium format film camera, so I can print large from it if I want to. And it's my main camera apart from the big view cameras. So these two are going to make the diptych. One large uh, horizontal um, that is going to be taken with the view camera. So a very large negative. Some of them are 4x5. Some of them are 8x10. So very large. And um, the other image is going to be taken with my uh, little uh, famous broken camera <laughs> very in black and white.
1: Well, so you're out documenting, you know, these views of cities, but now you've shared that you spend a lot more time indoors yes. in your own studio. Mm-hmm. Um and I think you recently produced a series mm-hmm. of a collection of birds of paradise that almost looked mm-hmm. like dancers. So tell me about this work that is now more studio based.
2: Yes. So it also happened because of the um, the change of my technique towards the view camera in the pandemic uh, during the pandemic months and and years even. I um Started working with a view camera and did flower stills. For, the, for those that are not familiar, what is a view camera? Yeah, so a view camera is a very large camera. Some are on rails for the studio. They're very hard to take out. And some are uh, field cameras. So you, they like Tupperware. You can close and open them. And you have to put a lens on it. And it's basically just um, a black box with a film in the back that you have to put in. You have to load that film in the dark. Um, in a cassette and use that later to take the picture. So each film is one photo only. And then the front you have the lens that throws the photo through the dark room onto the film in reverse and upside down. So you look with a with a little bit of a lens or a loop to focus and you look at the image upside down and in reverse, which is very fascinating. And then you see the results and they're pretty large physical negatives, which changed my approach to photography completely working with these because uh, you have the negative in front of you and it's fascinating. And the Birds of Paradise series are basically just portraits of tropical flowers that are dried because during the pandemic, my wife bought a lot of flowers and they all dried out and it was just being home and they were there dying in front of me. And I thought this is, very beautiful and I want to use I want to portray these photos and it was a great at uh, these flowers with photography and I thought it was a great exercise again to get to know the view camera and do actually pretty complicated photos and I kept them as negatives so they're basically black and white images that are reversed so everything that is white is black on the image and everything that is black is white on my images which is also an incredible combination with the night shots in the Everglades because it's almost like making a non-negative to a negative because I reverse the, hmm. sh, the yeah light.
1: I, I, I see them even though the scale is different yes. um, you see the attention to kind of detail but also con- the contrast the power of the contrasting yes. um, tones I think is uh, stunning and they also look like bodies they
2: dancing and, for sure and I,
1: and I feel that it's <laughs> great to hear you because you you have kept to the analog mm-hmm. versus let's say completely adopting digital and yeah. for me I feel it's almost an extension of your own body there's a physicality to the work yes that you produce um in analog that is not really po- possible perhaps in digital nice. or the degree of physicality and i right. for that I, i've enjoyed listening to your process so Thank we're coming you. to the end of the interview wow, Stefan. This was and so, so i asked and- i asked everybody <laughs> um, so i need you to tell me in about a minute okay Stefan, what trying. is your favorite city I'm gonna. And
2: why? This. this is a very difficult question for me, but I'll keep it very short. Um, uh, it has to be Chicago at the moment um, and for a long time already. Uh, I, the f- city fascinates me every time I'm there. And I'm lucky enough to have a second home there uh, in a wonderful building uh, overlooking the lake. So it is like being on holiday in one of my favorite cities. And I'm still discovering it. Um, I throw in a second city that is in my beloved Europe, which is Lisbon, mm. but completely different and fascinating me. And it will in the future mean something more to me, I think, because uh, it was beautiful and beautiful light. But for that's, now, I think that's it a, is Chicago.
1: I think that's a beautiful way to end <laughs> the episode. Thank you, Stefan. Oh, it has thank been you a great much. pleasure to spend an hour with you. Um, thanks for Likewise. taking time from your busy schedule for oh. this conversation. And next week, I will be joined by yas Asmin Larry. At 82, Ms. Lari is Pakistan's first female architect. With a remarkable career spanning over five decades, she's made significant contributions to the profession. She's the co-founder of the Heritage Foundation of Pakistan, an organization that is deeply committed to preserving Pakistan's rich architectural heritage. And she's built more than 50,000 Pakistani homes for humanitarian causes. That is influenced by the vernacular traditions of her country. Do not miss what is sure to be an inspiring conversation. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, connect to all previous episodes on Spotify, Apple, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts and connect to us on On Cities. I look forward to connecting again next Friday. And thank
2: you, Stefan. Thank you very much, Carrie. You made this so easy and (laughs) I will tune in and listen to this. This is all fascinating.
1: Beautiful. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebaud. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again
1: next week.